0: So for me, that's the part that, that's really interesting. How do those changes in, in the brain functioning, changes in the brain uh, interaction among the neurons, how does that result in changes in behavior, changes in emotions, changes in reaction, changes in the use of language? And that's the part for me that, that's really fascinating, actually, both about neurology and psychiatry.
1: Welcome back to the Neurophilia Podcast. As always, I am your host and fourth-year medical student, Neuper Goyle. In today's episode, we will be discussing the fascinating relationship between neurology and psychiatry. Compared to most other organ systems, the brain is uniquely divided into two medical specialties, neurology and psychiatry. Prior to the 20th century, however, these two fields of medicine were often practiced together under the umbrella of neuropsychiatry. Prominent thinkers such as Hippocrates and Charcot believed that psychopathologies arose from the brain and were treated as such. So what caused the shift in medical practice? Well, the advent of psychoanalysis and neuropathology, coupled with a growing dualism of mind versus body and organic versus functional, led to a massive division between neurology and psychiatry in the West. More recently, however, scientific literature and neurodiagnostic imaging are blurring the lines between these two fields of medicine. An estimated 50% of patients with primary neurologic disease will also experience psychiatric illnesses such as anxiety or depression. This includes conditions such as TBI, neurodegenerative disease, stroke, MS, and epilepsy. In NMDA Autoimmune encephalitis, 40% of patients will initially present with psychiatric symptoms of hallucinations and agitation, and thus a whopping third are first evaluated by a psychiatrist. For a more in depth review of all studies and statistics mentioned in the episode, please check out our episode's description for more information. In her New York Times best selling autobiography, Brain on Fire, Susanna Kahalen recounts her battle with NMDA encephalitis. Prior to receiving treatment, she was actually misdiagnosed with psychiatric ailments such as bipolar disorder and schizoaffective disorder. Her story, which I encourage everyone to read or listen to if you haven't already, um, is a brilliant example of this intimate relationship between neurology and psychiatry. And one of my favorite quotes from her novel is, The brain is a monstrous, beautiful mess. I want to repeat that quote one more time because I I absolutely love it. The brain is a monstrous, beautiful mess. And I bring this quote up and I repeat it because I know it will resonate with both of our guests in very similar as well as different ways. So to help me discuss the beautiful and monstrous relationship between these two fields of medicine, I have with me vascular neurologist and neurophilia co-host, Dr. Blake Bilekko and special guest, Dr. Randon Welton. Dr. Randon Welton is currently the Margaret Clark Morgan Professor and Chair of Psychiatry at the Northeast Ohio Medical University. He is also the President of the American Association of Directors of Psychiatry Residency Training. Before arriving at Neomed, Dr. Welton has had a long career as both a military psychiatrist and psychiatric educator with a focus on psychotherapy and addressing the impact of trauma on mental health. Dr. Randon Welton, welcome to the Neurophilia Podcast. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Well, thank you so much for for inviting me. This is a a delight for me. and One of the things that makes it especially important is I was very, very close to becoming a neurologist. It was the fourth year of medical school before I decided which of these two fields, both of which I loved, uh, that I was going to end up going into. And you had talked about the history, and it's a fascinating history about the how neurology and psychiatry diverged uh, at, during the last century. And just a, a couple of thoughts about that. You know, Freud, the father of, of psychoanalysis, he was trained as a neurologist. Alzheimer was trained as a psychiatrist. The two fields were very, very close together. But what seemed to happen in the beginning part of the 20th century was the technological limitations of studying brain function. We just couldn't tell what was going on in the brain. Plus the discovery that you could help people with significant anxiety, depression, other kinds of mental illness. You could treat them with psychotherapy and then by psychopharmacology without really understanding what was going on in the brain, that that led to that divergence between the two fields. Um, And and then they gradually divided by theory, the focus of research, sometimes even things like vocabulary, the interventions we had, and they've grown apart. But the wonderful and exciting thing is that now with advances in kind of neuroscience and imagery and other studies, we're starting to to come back together. So it's really exciting for me to be here and talk to you about this interaction between neurology and psychiatry.
1: I thought it was so fascinating to sort of hear about your journey to becoming a psychiatrist and and hearing about this inner turmoil between the two fields sort of talks to how interconnected neurology and psychiatry truly are. And so, you know, Dr. Welton, Dr. Boletko, could you sort of talk a little bit about the interactions between your two fields of medicine?
2: Yeah. Um, and and Rainy, thanks for being with us. Uh, obviously, Nupar and I are both very excited to have you and Uh, similar to you, uh, I had a lot of uncertainty about where my career was going to take me. And I actually, we were just chatting before we started recording about um, the fact that I I was very interested in neurology and psychiatry. And I had a lot of great mentors who were neurologists. I had a lot of great mentors who were psychiatrists. And I really loved the interplay between them. And um, I looked into and applied to uh, combined neuropsych programs. And we were chatting a little bit about that. And so it's funny that, you know, we are two different specialty physicians, yet uh, we both have a lot of interest in each other. And so I'm looking forward to our conversation in, in, in this episode. Um, I would say, you know, Newper to your point is, uh, how do we interact? How do we, uh, you know, get along? Um, I interact with psychiatry all the time. Um, psychiatry, psychology. Um, uh, A large portion of my patients, being a predominant stroke neurologist, um, have some comorbid psychiatric disease, Um, and I think it's uh, under-recognized. I think it's probably under-treated. Every time I'm on hospital service, I'm on general neurology service right now, and a lot of it is a lot of combination between neurology and psychiatry. We consult together on each other's patients. You have to have an understanding of uh, recognizing disease um, and the comorbid complications that come along with it. There is a whole host of uh, combined diseases that we see both uh, in neurology and psychiatry. And then we also uh, see a lot of manifestations of you know, uh, neurologic disease with psychiatric comorbidities.
0: Yeah, I was trying, and I don't have any data or numbers uh, to back this up, but I was trying to think of which are the four cases or situations where I interact most commonly with neurology. And the four I came up with, first one is dementia consults for functional neurological disorders, what we used to call conversion disorders and so forth. Traumatic brain injury. Again, I came out of a military background. So that was a a very common situation where you would have both psychiatry and neurology involved. And then HIV related changes, Uh, perhaps a little less now than in the past uh, because of improvements in treatment. But you know, it wasn't too many years ago where that was a really common kind of situation where psychiatry would be called in or neurology would be called in. Both of us consulted uh, to the infectious disease ward uh, to, to manage patients. So there is a lot of overlap, and it's an interesting uh, difference in perspective sometimes of, of how you categorize things, how you describe things, and how you proceed forward.
2: Another common one that that we run into issues with sometimes are the neurodegenerative disorders and. You know, a lot of the medications that we love for our neurodegenerative patients or our Parkinson's patients uh, may not uh, interact very well with what we're trying to, to do and manage from a, a psychiatric comorbidity standpoint. And oftentimes the treatment for both of these two things that you're trying to treat well together, they're they're diametrically opposed treatments. It's always a, a fine line that we're kind of balancing between uh, but I think that it's it's one that we do pretty well um, as colleagues. And um I have to say that some of my my favorite colleagues are some of our psychiatry, uh, you know, folks.
0: One thing I, I started. This was my the last place I worked before I came to Northeast Ohio Medical University. Uh, we had I was running a, a psychiatry training program and started to create combined rounds, uh, which was a fascinating opportunity. One side or the other would present a patient in that kind of gray area between our two specialties, and to hear how the others would proceed, how they would conceptualize this patient, how they would what they would think of doing, what their next step would be, was a fascinating uh, learning experience for their residents and our residents, and, and was something that our residents just didn't have before.
1: The brain, the way that you look at it from neurology and psychiatry is obviously, as Dr. Baleco said, sometimes diametrically opposed, um, but there's so much overlap between these two fields of medicine. Um, and, and I wanted to go back to something that, Dr. Welton, you mentioned briefly, this you know, this idea that there's a lot that you can learn from your neurology cohorts when you have to interact with a lot of these similar patients. And so I'm wondering, you know, from both of your perspectives, what can neurologists learn from psychiatrists in terms of diagnosing and treating patients? And what can psychiatrists learn from neurologists um, when it comes to patient management?
0: One of the most exciting aspects of being a psychiatrist in 2023 is our growing understanding of underlying neuroscience and underlying neurobiology. That we've moved from a simple, you know, lesion-focused understanding of how the brain works to a lot more circuit-based understanding. And some of the most exciting aspects of, of what I do and what I talk about are those Kind of networks. So the amygdala and the salience network, which is extremely important in post traumatic stress disorder, with the hippocampus and memory and the emotional content of memory, the nucleus accumbens and the ventral tegmental area and, and their interactions with addictions of all sorts, that, that kind of understanding starts to now inform how we treat patients. We're starting to base our treatments a little bit more on what's going on at the brain level rather than just the clinical outcome. And that understanding of the neurobiology, the understanding of neuroscience is something that I think we we would lean heavily on our neurologists for.
2: You know, in one of our other episodes, Neuber, we talked a lot about storytelling. And in order to be a good storyteller, you also have to be a good listener. And we talked about uh, the storytelling of neurology and the, the listening uh, to the patient's story and perhaps uh you know, for all the neurologists out there, I'm sorry, but perhaps people that do this even better than what we do are our psychiatry colleagues. And who listens to a patient's story better and tells their story um, than psychiatrists? I can't think of any that do. And so um, the fact that we approach patients in a similar fashion, the fact that we really dive into who they are as people to understand what their pathology is and what it's, meaning to them as people, I think it's really, really powerful. And, you know, as much as we've talked about the biology of psychiatry and uh, more and more of neuroanatomy that we're learning and linking with psychiatry, you know, I also really appreciate our psychiatry colleagues coming in with a fresh set of eyes. And if there's a patient that we're having a really, really hard time figuring out that there's not this great organic underlying uh, diagnostic etiologic uh, kind of explanation for what's going on, Uh, I'll I'll be honest with you, it's very rare that we don't get some valuable information from our psychiatry colleagues. And how powerful is that, that you can have two sets of people that look at uh, the brain in very different ways, but have enough overlap to where you can really do great things for the patient. And medications have evolved quite a lot. And uh, it's very difficult to keep up with the pharmacology of a lot of the uh, medications that, that are used by psychiatrists. And so um, oftentimes, I find it very valuable and helpful to get uh, psychiatry's opinion on medication effects and what the best medication treatment options are. The other thing that I love about psychiatry is they're observers, just like we are. Um, sometimes there's a lot of power in just observing what's going on. And we were waiting for an elevator and uh, it, it it beeped and I immediately just went to get in and go up. And uh, the psychiatrist I was with said, you know, Blake, just Wait. And I said, well, what do you mean, wait, the elevator is here. And he said, uh, if an elevator dings once, it's going up. If an elevator dings twice, it's going down. And just something so simple to where he paid enough attention to the elevators. And I said, is this like a hospital thing or is this like a universal uh, approach to elevators? And he said, you go uh, to different places and you let me know what you find out. And it's universal. And no one has ever said, you don't need to look for the light that goes up or down. Just listen to the sound. And I've observed that one beep
0: is up, two beeps is down. So That's, I, I didn't know that. I'm going to have to pay attention to that going forward. That's fantastic. You I don't all know out how... there
2: that are listening, uh, go and do some experiments let me know if, <laughs> if you find any discrepancies with that.
0: And I don't know how many most exciting aspects I'm allowed to throw in, but I'm going to throw in one more most exciting aspect. Which is really our growing awareness of the bi-directional model of brain and b- behavior relationships. That obviously the brain directs behavior, it it experiences the world, it interprets our interactions with the outside world. We we've known that for a long time. But what we're starting to recognize more is how psychosocial surroundings, our circumstances, our environment through epigenetic kind of modification actually impacts brain functioning and gene expression within the neurons of the brain. So what we have always referred to as biopsychosocial is absolutely real. And it's just another name for epigenesis. We're good at biopsychosocial in general, but understanding the mechanism beneath it is something that we're just starting to learn. And and I look forward to learning more from neurologists and other neuroscience, because that's, again, that's one of the most exciting parts about being a psychiatrist.
1: You know, to, to sort of shift the gear a little bit, Um, you know, something that I talked a little about in the introduction was sort of how... Oftentimes, neurologic disease can manifest as psychiatric symptoms and vice versa. Um, And and both of you have already mentioned this idea that there's a lot of comorbidities between these two organ systems. And so um, I wanted to bring up this, this piece published in the Neurology Journal back in 2016. And it was titled, The Terrorist Inside My Husband's Brain. Um, and it's actually written by the wife of the late famous actor, Robin Williams, um, Suzanne Schneider Williams. And, you know, Robin Williams, most people know that he suffered with depression, but it, it turns out that he also suffered from diffuse Lewy body dementia that wasn't actually confirmed until, you know, postmortem autopsy. And so in this editorial, um, Susanna writes, uh, a prior history can complicate a diagnosis. Does a prior psychiatric or neurologic history of a patient sort of influence the way that you perceive new complaints?
0: I can, I can tell one story, and we are going back away. We're going back to my first rotation as a resident, and I'm not even going to tell you how long ago that was, but it's probably before you were born. Uh, and it was on an inpatient neurology unit. And they had admitted a patient and she had a historic diagnosis of schizophrenia. And they said, well, the psychiatric unit is full. We need to get her out of the ER. So we're going to place her on the neurology unit until a bed opens up. And they, they described her as being catatonic and uh, as being uncommunicative and the, the folks in the ER just kind of wrote it off as a psychiatric condition. Fortunately, when we got her onto the neurology service, Uh, I was a resident, the the senior residents of the attending, we quickly recognized, no, there's changes in reflexes. There are changes in strength. This has nothing to do with her psychiatric condition. She had a subdural hematoma that was causing significant impairment in her communication abilities. And we got it, we we identified it, we got it managed, but there is that, is that tendency. um, uh, Again, maybe I feel it more as, as a psychiatrist that once you get that psychiatric illness label that people stop taking your symptoms as seriously and, and that, you know, you can miss things that way.
2: I couldn't agree more from our side um, as well. Uh, you know, functional neurologic disorders, um, I'm, and I'm glad that there's been a lot more recognition that has surrounded, um, you know, people with functional neurological disorders in the last several years. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of labeling, there's a lot of stigma that's associated with uh, some of these. And I think that it's easy to write some people off Uh, as a neurologist, if you don't feel like there's a a substantiated organic pathology to what you're trying to see. Um, And and now that the field is changing to recognize that maybe we just don't know what that is yet, maybe that there's more to this. And if you reshift your your thought instead of, uh, we can't give this person steroids or TPA or IVIG or plasma exchange, uh, but what can we do? Um, There are a lot of things that we can do for patients, and most of these patients do really, really well with the right type of therapy and with encouragement, with rehab, with all the things that we should be focusing on. So there there are so many treatment options that are there that can really benefit the patient, but you have to recognize what you're dealing with, and it's not just saying, uh, I don't see anything organically, your brain MRI is normal uh, goodbye, this is all made up. You know, a lot of patients will tell us, we hear this is all in your head. This is all made up. This is something that you can stop. And I, I think that we're getting there. I think that it's uh, a work in progress, but you're right. Um, if, if you get labeled one way or the other, it's very hard to reshift focus. Um, but I think that that's a, a reason why we're being more attentive to the comorbid diseases and also why our psychology, psychiatry colleagues, ask us to comment on, do you think that there is an alternative organic pathology before we start treating this as a primary psychiatric condition? Let's make sure that we're not missing something else that maybe would lead us down a different path. And I think that that's really powerful.
0: And I think, I mean, I think this occurs in all of of medicine, perhaps more strongly in our two career fields where you define the person by their diagnostic history, Uh, a lot of patient-centered approaches to to patient care. So, you know, the patient with schizophrenia, rather than calling them just a schizophrenic, you know, that we have, and it's certainly within my field, but we have for a long time defined the individual by the illness that they have, and that's unfair to them. It's inaccurate, and it's not how you're going to help them. So I I think we struggle with that in all of medicine, and and, in my field, certainly, uh, perhaps in neurology as well. But it's something, it's an area where we need to grow and do better.
2: That's a great point. I love that point.
1: Well, thank you both for commenting on this and and Dr. Walton hearing about your own personal example of, you know, this sort of anchoring bias that occurs in medicine when especially when it relates to psychiatry because there's such a stigma, you know, associated with psychiatric conditions. Um it's important to keep an open mind and and obviously um, have a very broad differential and consider the fact that there might be alternative processes at play. So, so thank you both for, for uh, indulging me in that conversation. Um, something that I talked about in the introduction for this episode was sort of the history of neuropsychiatry and how the two fields of neurology and psychiatry were united at one point in time in history and sort of have divided over the last um, sort of century or two. And so, Um, More recently, however, there has been this international effort to uh, better define and integrate The discipline of neuropsychiatry into neurology and psychiatry residency training. And while there are some scholars that argue that this is a great idea and that better unity will allow for these two fields of medicine, provide more holistic patient care, and maybe bring more medical students into the professions of neurology and psychiatry, others argue that the two fields are so diametrically opposed and there's such different discourse that occurs that it's very difficult to bring these two fields of medicine together. so I'm curious, um, from both of your experiences with with medical education, with dealing with residents, um, can you comment on the level of integration and interdisciplinary training that is available at the residency level?
0: Now, one of the things that guides this is the fact that our certification boards is the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. So it's the same board that, that certifies us both. And so there is overlap. So on the, I think it's roughly a third. So on the psychiatry you know, board certification, roughly a third of the questions are neurology. And I believe the opposite is true uh, for neurology. So there is a need to train. I know for psychiatry residency training, the requirement is two months of neurology. That at some point, and one of the months has to be in the first year, and all that. That you know, you have to have a two-month dedicated rotation on on neurology, uh, where you can identify those in neurological crises, for example, stroke, where you can differentiate conditions that are typically considered neurological from conditions that are better explained as manifestations of psychiatry, uh, and and to understand when and how to consult neurology intelligently and in a useful fashion. So, so for us, there's a, a mandatory. Uh, two months that all psychiatry residents spend on neurology. There are, uh, I, I looked it up, there are four kind of combined neurology psychiatry program, but they're very small. I think they have a total of four spots uh, between them and that's in the entire country. Uh, so it's a very, very small area right now where you get that true combination. But, but as you pointed out, one that might be growing as we, as we understand more of the neuroscience behind psychiatry and more of the, the psychiatric components of neurologic disorder. But I'm very interested from, from a neurology training point of view, what, how, how would you see that?
2: Yeah, uh, you, you stole a lot of my points, and I'm not surprised because we're pretty much on the same page with a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the the shared board since 35, uh, I think, speaks volumes. I was looking up uh, in anticipation of this podcast to kind of go and, and see what the breakdown of our board exam was uh, for last year and this coming year. And, you know, it's it's five to seven percent of just primary psychiatric disorders. But then if you search for psychiatry within the outline of what is going to be tested, you see uh psychiatric manifestation of XYZ, almost everything else that's tested on the boards, uh, there's some uh manifestation. So I think that you're uh you know accurate in, in saying you know the percentages that are flipped. And that's historically what we've been taught is about 30% psychiatry in the rest neurology. And so Um, You know, from a residency standpoint right now, the the current, um, you know, uh, ACGME requirements are one month of psychiatry uh, and that's dedicated psychiatry. So we uh, feel that it's really important for our residents to get this very early on in their training. Um, And so we have prioritized doing this during their first year of training so that they can then use the information that they have moving forward. Um, But this is just one month or to your point, two months of dedicated time uh, the time that you're getting even taking care of primary psychiatric patients or primary neurology patients, um, it gets you so much more exposure uh, to everything that we've been talking about. The advice that I got whenever I was really struggling between going back and forth between neurology and psychiatry um, is at the end of the day, someone told me you have to primarily be a neurologist or a psychiatrist. And both of these fields, and and I think people that go into these fields are really excited because the brain is still a black box. And we say there's going to be so much yet to find out about the brain uh, and about the interaction between the brain and the mind. Uh, That's a field that I want to go into because it is just going to be booming in research and we're going to find out so many things. The problem with that is if you are dual boarded in neurology and psychiatry and you are actively trying to practice both, that is a lot of information to try to digest, to try to keep up with, I was having a chat with our residents uh, yesterday and today, and you know, there's over 30 subspecialties of neurology right now. And so even trying to stay up to date with everything that there is as a, as a general neurologist uh, is just so overwhelming that trying to do that uh, in uh, kind of combination with keeping up with uh, psychiatric literature, I couldn't even imagine trying to do both. Where I think it's really helpful is uh, as a subspecialist neurologist, how can I understand my subset of patients as well as what I can? And that's not just from a neuro standpoint, that's from a a comorbid standpoint, from a cardiology standpoint, an endocrinology standpoint, and definitely a psychiatry standpoint. I I still feel very strongly that we probably under-recognize a lot of our patients with some underlying psychiatric comorbidity that either we don't know how to recognize, we are scared to recognize it because it takes more time, or we don't know how to treat it after we've been able to identify that it's there.
1: Do you think that one month of psychiatry exposure and residency for neurology and two months for psychiatry and neurology training is enough at the resident level?
0: I would say clearly it's not enough, but the problem is without continuing to extend residency longer, what are you going to cut out for it? So, uh, psychiatry residency, counting your first internship years, four is forty-eight months. So, you know, two of those forty-eight months are are in neurology. Uh, you know, four of those are in primary care. Twelve of those are in outpatient psychiatry. It's just it's hard to find. No. We do have some elective time that people can choose to go back and do neurology. The problem is just finding, you know, what do we cut out in order to expand neurology without extending the, the residency even further? And so far, we've just been unable to do that. So I, I, I think neurology is probably in a very similar vein. It recognizes the, the importance of it, but it's just there is there's so much to learn in neurology. You don't want to cut anything. You know, there's nothing to there's no fat to trim off of that.
2: Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I think that it also emphasizes the fact that you should learn from your consultants. If you're seeing uh, a patient and your consultant comes and makes recommendations, don't just look at a screen and put an order in or say, okay, this is what we're doing. Try to understand why um, and the rationale behind it. And the same as if you refer one of your outpatients to a psychiatrist really follow up on what happened, what medications did they choose? What did they identify? What did they pick up on that I missed? Cause that will happen. And then uh, have a conversation with the patient the next time they come in to understand it a little bit better. I think as long as you're learning in that way um, one month, I'm glad that there's some mandate, but uh, no, I agree. It's, it's not enough, but you can make it enough. If you're really uh, trying to pay attention to, to every, you know, consultant that comes by and sees your patients with you.
0: And I think that's an excellent idea that we, we too often find ourselves in self-made silos where, you know, I have a patient who has a neurologic disorder, so I'm tempted to just okay, I will send them to the neurologist, the neurologist will take care of the neurology stuff, and I will just take care of my my area. And, and that's not really doing the, the best we can for that patient, we really need to understand what that other provider is seeing what they're thinking, what they're doing, why they're doing that, we need to take time to get that so and, and continue to grow in our own professional abilities. No, I think that's an excellent point.
1: Absolutely. It's it's that difference between active and passive education um, and knowledge. You know, with residency, there's always opportunities to learn even beyond the the already constructed way so so thank you dr baleco for that perspective um and you know dr welton the the purpose of this first season of neurophilia is sort of to address neurophobia which is the the fear of clinical neurology amongst medical students and young doctors um and so i'm i'm curious from your perspective have you ever experienced neurophobia
0: I I honestly laughed when you used that term because I had never heard it. But as soon as I read what it was, I said, oh, I've seen it. I just have never heard that term before. Uh, I I thought that was really funny. Um, And and, and certainly I can only speak to psychiatry, but and and it's not so much the specialty of neurology as it is an overarching fear of neuroscience, uh, which is perhaps best embodied by neurology. And this I, I, I did. I looked up a quote. This is from 2020. So 3 years ago in the British Journal of Psychiatry so one of the most you know prestigious psychiatric journals in the entire world and this was an opinion piece so it's not science based but this is the quote unfortunately it is still not possible to cite a single neuroscience or genetic finding that has been of use to the practicing psychiatrist in managing serious mental illness So there's this idea that there's all of that information out there. and There's all those thousands and thousands of studies of neuroscience and none of it impacts what we do. That's the the belief that's out there. And it's just so intimidating to open up neuroscience journals and to see those words. And we don't really remember the neuroanatomy that much because it's been a while. And and to think that, well, if I take the time to learn it, it's not going to really impact anything I do with my patients anyway. So I think that's at least from psychiatry. I think that's historically where it's come from, uh, what that what that fear is, and, and it's something that we can we can start to counteract by pointing out what the mechanisms are, why our treatments do work. Now we don't understand them all, but we're starting to get an understanding. Uh, Uh, Again, I was a military psychiatrist for a long time, so uh, I spent a lot of time with patients with post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's one of the, the conditions where we have a really nice clear line between what happens to the brain after trauma, how the functioning of the brain alters after traumatic events, how our treatments counteract that and how that leads to improvement. And I think over time, we'll start to be able to do that, draw that connection with more and more psychiatric conditions. And when we do that, then neurology and neuroscience in general becomes a whole lot less intimidating and a whole lot less distant. Right now, for a lot of clinical psychiatrists, it just seems very far removed from what they actually do on a day-to-day basis. And that's something through training and education that we can change.
2: I was curious, Randy, uh, you have a lot of insight, and we touched briefly on your early interest in neurology. Um, What do you love most about neurology? What gets you excited about neurology if you think about it, Uh, I I guess, or the field in general? What do you hear from your colleagues about why
0: people love neurology and the interplay between the two of them? And I have kind of hinted at it, and it's that connection between what we experience and what's lying underneath it how the brain is actually changing, how the brain changes with interaction. Uh, You had mentioned in your very kind introduction that I I am someone who talks a lot about psychotherapy and, and I really value the importance of psychotherapy. And psychotherapy doesn't work magically. Psychotherapy works through changing brain function. And that's the part of of psychiatry that I find to be really fascinating. How do I, by sitting down and the two of us talking over an extended period of time on multiple occasions, how do I actually change your brain's functioning so that you start feeling better? Uh, In post-traumatic stress disorder, why do the medications I use help? So I'm using, you know, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor for, for PTSD. Why does that help? It's not like you have a deficiency of, of antide- antidepressants. That's not the cause of your condition. Uh, but what is it changing and how that, that neuron functions? How is it changing the interactions between the neurons that actually helps you to feel better? So for me, that's the part that, that's really interesting. How do those changes in, in the brain functioning, changes in the brain uh Interaction among the neurons. How does that result in changes in behavior, changes in emotions, changes in reaction, changes in the use of language? And that's the part for me that that's really fascinating. Actually, both about neurology and psychiatry.
1: Beautifully said, Dr. Walton. Just just beautifully said. Um... Doctors Blake Villetko and Dr. Randon Welton, thank you so much for your time. And it was just such an honor and privilege to hear your perspective on this beautiful relationship between neurology and psychiatry. Um, and you know, before we conclude, I want to ask you, Dr. Welton, about your no-brainers. And these okay. are gonna be five rapid-fire questions that you can respond to with one word or one sentence maximum.
0: Okay. Are you ready to go? Yes.
1: What was your favorite part of this conversation?
0: The mutual excitement. Mm -hmm. Uh, My excitement about neurology, Blake's excitement about uh, psychiatry.
1: Love it. What do you hope changes with the next generation of psychiatrists?
0: Much of what we were just talking about, that increased excitement about the neuroscience that underlies what we do.
1: Mm What is your solution for burnout in medicine?
0: Okay, this one is going to be a tough one because this is something I tend to talk about and I've done a lot of presentations on this. So I will do it as quickly as I can. Take your time. Uh, There's the real there's the realization that no single solution works well for everyone and actually doesn't even work well for the one person in multiple situations so there's really four different areas and depending on who you are and what you're going through it might be a personal intervention that's the famous yoga you know yoga and exercise and getting hobbies and stuff it can be a workplace intervention what are the pebbles in your shoe what are the things that just annoy you about where you work. Sometimes it's a very simple change. Uh, Sometimes that's what needs to happen. Sometimes it needs to be organizational changes, uh, expectations, support staff, uh, workflow. Uh, So sometimes it's workplace. But one of the interesting ones is reminding ourselves of the meaning, value, and significance of our work. You know, mm. no one gets into medicine so that they can sit at a computer and click electronic medical record boxes, right? We got into medicine because we wanna help people. We wanna interact with people. We wanna learn about our patients and help our patients. And sometimes the, the best key to improving resilience or diminishing burnout is to remind yourself why you got in medicine in the first place. What was valuable valuable about it when you started? What makes it exciting now? That's wow. as quick as I could do it, sorry. Wow.
1: No, I absolutely love it. Um, What is your favorite book?
0: A tough one. Uh, Old Man and the Sea. Uh, The the depiction of a struggle against overwhelming odds and how little anyone understands about the struggles that others are experiencing.
1: Hmm. And the last question I have for you, Dr. Walton: what are you most proud of?
0: okay, I pretty much have to say children just in case they listen to this. So my children, (laughs) in case you're listening, uh, if not, if my children aren't listening, then uh, I have just returned from the annual meeting of psychiatry residency training directors. And what I'm most proud of is the number of my former residents who are now clinician educators, who are now involved in residency training, some of them leading residency training programs, and, and seeing some of that passion that I think I have about the field being passed on to them and to the residents that they train.
1: In this episode, we discussed the fascinating relationship between neurology and psychiatry, shared some ways to better integrate neuropsychiatry into residency training, and spent some time discussing the love of the beautiful and monstrous brain shared between Dr. Bilekko and Dr. Welton. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share it with a friend. Make sure you follow us on social media at NeurophiliaPod for updates on future episodes. In our next episode, we will be discussing the relationship between neurology and neurosurgery. See you then.